The Lord be with you. Most of us have probably met someone with a name that was kind of weird or a little bit different. Can you imagine being a slave or a domestic servant whose name meant useful? How many bad dad jokes would you have to pretend to laugh at when someone asked you to make yourself useful? Really hilarious stuff. And I say this as a guy who's married to a woman named Buffy. And believe me when I tell you that the jokes get funnier every single time she hears them. There was one time, though, when she met a guy named Lando. And before she even had given it any thought, she made a Star Wars reference, which she immediately regretted because he looked at her without the slightest glint of humor in his eyes. And he said, oh, that's the first time I've heard that one. (laughs) She said it was okay to tell that story. So, How often do we get to read an entire book of the Bible in one sitting in church? One letter, one sitting. Not really part of the tradition as we practice it now. Definitely the way they used to read the Bible together. Paul's letter to Philemon is about a a slave named Useful, or Onesimus, if you prefer the original language. As with all of these letters, we're reading someone else's mail. And 21st century readers, we do our best to fill in the gaps here and there. Filling in the blanks where we can. Here's what we do think we know about Paul's letter to Philemon. Paul is in prison somewhere. Maybe he's in Ephesus or Rome. And he's come to know this young man named Onesimus. And he's a fugitive slave. We don't know how Onesimus found Paul, but as it happens, Paul has a great friendship with his master, Philemon, who lives in Colossae. As it happens, strangely enough, Philemon means affectionate in Greek. Same root word that we get that they use for kiss. But maybe let's not read too much into that. Paul doesn't seem to. In time, though, as he gets to know the young man, Paul decides to write a masterful letter of reference for this young man in crisis, appealing on behalf of his friend, asking, suggesting, arguing, maybe even calling in a few favors. Asking Philemon to receive Onesimus back, not as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother. And boy, does Paul lay it on thick. He really shows some nerve, actually. He alludes to his authority in Christ, his history with Philemon. He really butters him up, telling him that the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you, my brother. Paul pulls his status as an old fatherly figure, offering financial support even if needed. And yeah, he tells a couple of bad dad jokes about the once useless slave becoming useful. <laughs> Onesimus, I bet that never gets old. Now, some interpreters have said this is an example of Paul's sharp wit. 
I'm not so sure. Paul is persuasive, and he's persistent. And he suggests that this is all really Philemon's choice. It's a good deed done for its own sake, and he doesn't really need to put pressure on him. In the end, Paul is confident that he will do the right thing. All of this, of course, with charm and warmth and kindness and grace and peace from a much-loved friend. That's the gist of the letter. But we do have some gaps in the story. What sort of useless slave was Osasimus? A thief, maybe? A scoundrel? Just a lazy guy? What brought him to this bad place in his life? And maybe even the real question, after the letter was received, how did this all play out? Sue and I were talking about this earlier, and we both said, we both know how stuff works out in church sometimes. Most of the time, stories that we would like to tidy up are way more complicated than we had originally hoped. Was Onesimus received with open arms as a brother, no longer a slave? Did the other slaves look on in wonder as this disgraced runaway returned home with honor and privilege like the prodigal returned? Was this the beginning of something beautiful or was this another sad story? We actually don't know. There are some traditions that say that there was a pastor named Onesimus that cropped up some years later, but we don't know if it's the same guy. Generally speaking, most people who read the story or interpret it over the years have said, obviously, this was a happy story because why else would people gather around to read it over and over again? What sort of church would gather around and listen to the story of that time Paul vouched for that guy and then one of the poor saps totally blew the deal? Compared to a lot of Paul's writing, with all of his dense theological argument and his annoying and sometimes controversial commentary on church life, this kind of letter with such warmth and affection is a great example of Pastor Paul at work. Paul, a dear friend. A letter like this is also held up as a great example of the real-world outcomes of Christian community alive in the world. This is what changed lives look like, people. Christian friendship, love and forgiveness, grace and mercy, freedom and reconciliation, all practiced in the messy world they lived in. This letter is a piece of that story. The story of the gospel of Christ at work in the lives of rich people and poor people. People of influence and people who would otherwise be totally forgotten. A new community. A new people. Alive in the spirit, challenged by the cultural norms and systems of their day. This was never easy. This happy story has challenges. And that's because this short letter has been the source of conflict and debate in the church for generations. Weird, right? Well, we're talking about slavery on a Sunday morning in 2019. Slavery was a matter, of course, 
in the Roman world, the exploitation of human labor as a part of pretty much any empire. And Paul's letters, in the eyes of some, was a sort of casual acceptance of the practice. This letter was even framed as a biblical argument for returning runaway slaves to their masters. Ugh. This is one of the great embarrassments of church history, isn't it? Christians with at different points of view throughout the last 2,000 years have maintained this vulgar notion. Some of them were even Baptists. Gross, right? For the record, other Christians, some of them even Baptists, fought for the abolition of slavery. But let's not pat ourselves on the back just yet. You can see how this letter and the echoes of this sort of reading would not be popular in churches that had a living memory of slavery and racism. I mean, you can't blame them, can you? So how could this happen? How could the Bible be used this way? Slavery equals bad seems like a pretty obvious move, right? The overwhelming response from the bulk of Scripture, especially Jesus' words, are a call, an invitation to recognize and honor the God-given worth of every person. Love your neighbor. Do unto others. Care for the least of these. Justice, humility, mercy. God so loved the world. As it happens, the letter to Philemon is a really good lesson in how to read the Bible and how not to read the Bible. Every time we approach the scriptures, we bring with us a great collection of assumptions and biases, the benefit and the baggage of our own personal story as well as a a slowly accumulated buildup of culture and language, the lessons we were taught in Sunday school, and the lessons that we sort of, kind of, just picked up along the way. Some of that baggage is the pressure of our daily lives, our society, and our pocketbook. The gospel can be really inconvenient, troublesome even, for some of our concerns. And with the right blinders on, we can make the Bible say pretty much anything we want it to say. As it turns out, hunting down a verse or a passage that makes it seem okay to treat some people, certain people, poorly or badly or lesser, it isn't that hard to do, even if it contradicts the whole of the rest of the bulk of Scripture. How we read the Bible matters. Does it challenge and form us, or does it work for us? It might be tempting to read Philemon with its frank talk about slaves and masters with a sort of far-off romanticism. Let's together remember a strange and distant time when unscrupulous and ignorant people took advantage of other humans, owning them, buying them, selling them. It's unthinkable, really, because slavery is such a monstrous crime against humanity. But if we are honest with ourselves, we know it's not that simple, is it? 
Versions of the slave and master relationship have been playing themselves out in countless ways over the centuries. Sometimes with different names. People with wealth and power and privilege. People without money or status. Who yet remain useful to us. Slumlords and sharecroppers. Colonial merchants and serfs. The landed gentry, the unwashed masses, plantation owners and African slaves, pimps and human traffickers, mines, strawberry fields, railroads, reservation land, internment camps, stolen lands, the company store, subprime mortgages, terms of service with the fine print. Treaties, white-collar prison, regular prison, prison. Sex workers, migrant field hands, Lenny Small and George Milton, John D. Rockefeller, Cornelius Vanderbilt. Nations stripped for resources and run like a banana republic. Banana republic. Nike, The Gap, Apple. Sweatshop workers and child laborers from places like Bangladesh, Vietnam, Indonesia. The slavery we learned about in books and movies might be at an end, but we still live in an unfair world. A world which often judges people by their usefulness or their bank accounts failing to account for the God-given value of each person. A world where exploitation and the abuse of power are real and very much with us. It is to this unfair world that we, the church, are called. Every generation called to be a different sort of community. Spirit-filled and passionate for justice. Not maintainers and explainers and biblical manipulators of things. Let's keep things just the way they are. Thank you very much. We are called to be people who dream big and share God's dream for the world. Someday in the future, our ancestors will make a reckoning of how we, the 21st century church, carried ourselves. And I'm sure it will be unpleasant and embarrassing in its own way. This journey calls for an abundance of humility and repentance. We will make so many mistakes along the way. A quick thought experiment. Can you think of maybe one or two of those blind spots or blunders right now, even as you sit here? Is there a different way? If you can't think of a different way, I encourage you to talk this out with someone. Wrestle with this stuff. None of these problems have easy answers. Even our best efforts won't have the outcomes we'd hoped for.
This is the work that we are called to as gospel people in the world. People who live the Christ life in the world. And may we at First Baptist Church have eyes to see our place on planet Earth. May we perceive all the good that we may do for Christ. May we be faithful friends. Bold advocates. Transformed people. God's new community. Amen.